Welcome to Feeding Frenzy, a podcast brought to you by the Breastfeeding Resource Center. The BRC is a nonprofit organization in Abington, Pennsylvania. We're here to provide support on various parenting topics to help you get through the roller coaster ride of parenting. I'm your host, Colette Acker. Let's take this journey together. Hi, today we brought back a special guest, one of my favorites, Dr. Gail Heron, uh, to our program. Gail's an OBGYN and works at Temple University Hospital here in Philadelphia. And we originally talked, Gail, about antenatal hand expression. And after we ended that podcast recording, we started talking about contraception. And, and during that time, folks, Gail got a bit riled up and I said, stop right there. We need, we need to record another podcast. So we brought her back uh, to talk about contraception and breastfeeding. So welcome, Gail. Thanks so much, Colette. It's so glad to be, I'm so happy to be back. Love talking to you as well. Yeah, super fun. I'm so we have such a plethora of uh, fabulous people to talk to in our area. So it's been great. Um, so tell me, like, why are you riled up about this subject when we talk about contraception and breastfeeding? Let's start with that. Um, well, I'm riled up about contraception and breastfeeding because um, there seems to be um, because contraception is. I don't even know where to start. I'm so excited and riled up. I don't even know where to start. I get riled up about uh, contraception and breastfeeding because I think what a lot of people don't realize is that if a woman is breastfeeding exclusively, she has protection against pregnancy, especially early on in the immediate postpartum period. The lactation amenorrhea kind of. The lactation amenorrhea, yes. Well, we'll talk about that in a little bit, the lactation amenorrhea method. But when a woman first delivers, what happens to uh, um, in to the breasts is that because of hormonal changes with the delivery of the placenta, that is a drop, significant drop in progesterone, along with suckling, that makes for an increase in prolactin. Those two factors are the two key main factors that cause copious milk production. And so in the immediate postpartum period, what we want is for a woman to make a copious milk supply, and we don't want to do anything to interfere with that. Because so, that's the biggest thing. I don't ha- I don't think I'm making enough milk. That's like exactly their biggest right. fear. It's the biggest complaint that a woman has, especially a first-time mom in the hospital. And so, you know, in medicine, we have, a, we have an oath that we take, which is first do no harm. That's the first part of the Hippocratic Oath. And what I don't want to do is any harm to prevent a woman from making a copious milk supply. Um, So what we want is for women to just breastfeed, let the baby suckle, let the prolactin levels go up, and let the milk uh, come in. I think the biggest concern for physicians and uh, or providers is that we don't want a woman to get pregnant again right away. We don't want close baby spacing. I I get that. It's not good for the woman's body um, for her to get pregnant right away um, because it takes time for the woman to recover after birth, um, build her um, elements up in the body, build her iron stores up, lose some weight after she has the baby. 
Um, and also, obviously, nurse and take care of the baby. Um, and so we don't want her to get pregnant again. The, the, the most ideal spacing for babies is really felt to be about a minimum of 18 months between children. Okay, that's so pretty, that's pretty close. <laughs> it is pretty close. Um, but you can have, that's natural fam family planning would be is if you're breastfeeding, um, you know, to, to do nothing at least at first. And very few women are going to be having sex right after they have a baby. And of course, you need to have sex in order to have a pregnancy. Um, and so very few women are going to be having sex. And if they do, we can recommend that they use a condom if you're particularly concerned. But what I want a woman to do is breastfeed. And so I don't want to interfere with that. So any hormonal method is going could possibly interfere with milk production. Certainly estrogen-containing birth control, such as birth control pills, the birth control patch or the ring can affect. And we do not recommend those in um, the first six months of breastfeeding. However, progesterone, although it's safe for the baby, um, it may affect the milk production because of the reason I mentioned before about lactate, what's called lactogenesis 2 and the milk production in the beginning of the um, immediate postpartum period. And so, anecdotally, you know, they, it says they're safe. But in my practice, I've seen it all the time. You know, a full milk supply, even later down the line, you know, we look at what has changed. And, you know, even the progestin-only uh, pills and devices still can impact some people. Who knows why some people get impacted and others don't. We, I don't think we know why. But Exactly. And lots of research. There's not any good research on progesterone and birth control. Uh, birth, I'm sorry, progesterone agents and, and breastfeeding. What I want to say about um, what, you, what I said about it being safe, what I meant by that is, it's safe for the baby. It's not going to affect the baby, but it may affect the milk supply. And as you said, we don't know who it's going to affect. And so the question is, why do we need to give it in the immediate postpartum period? As long as a woman comes back for her postpartum visit, that is plenty of time um, for her to get on birth control. A woman who has who is not breastfeeding, who is formula feeding only, average ovulates on day 29 post-delivery. So Day 29, even if they're not breastfeeding, they're unlikely to get pregnant um, in the, within the first um, month. In the immediate postpartum period. So if they're breastfeeding, that ovulation is certainly going to be delayed until um, she gets there for her first postpartum visit. So my recommendation would be let a woman exclusively breastfeed, talk to her about contraception, and then plan on giving it as an interval when she arrives at her postpartum visit. I think that would be the ideal situation. The other thing that, that's good about that is that you can see then um, if she has a she's breastfeeding, she has a full milk supply. If you give her something, you can see if there's an effect on the milk supply and then you'll be able to stop it. And and therefore, I would want like to give a short acting such as a birth control pill. The right. thing about giving something like Depo-Provera injection is it lasts in the woman's body for three months. There's no way to reverse that effect. There's no way to get it out of the woman's body. So if you have an effect on the milk supply, there's nothing that you can do to change that. Right. And you may be able to do some things to get the milk supply up, but you can't reverse the effect on the progesterone. And, and even some of the devices that are inserted, it's still a pain to have to take it out. Right? It is a pain. But the thing I want to say about Depo Provera is Depo Provera also causes a fair amount of bleeding, especially in the immediate postpartum time. So that we, want, we would like the, the scar of the placental site to heal, 
so that she stops bleeding. If you give Depo-Provera, she continues to bleed often for um, six, eight, or maybe 12 weeks. And then a woman has to have a pad between her legs for that period of time. That and that's horrible. quite inconvenient as well. It's not only the effect on breastfeeding. You can have a significant effect on, um, uh, you know, of the bleeding. And so um, as is... far as the progesterone containing, you were saying the progesterone containing IUDs, of course, we don't want to take them out, but at least we can take it out. Yeah, true. I mean, it is reversible. Um, as opposed to the Depo-Provera, which I think is the, it's probably the most impactful. And that is that, because because you can't reverse it. So what is like the most popular? You're, I know you just work with one population, but is there a popular uh, contraception right now? I know, you know, new things come on the market and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it really depends on, um, so... I don't know what I would say. What I would say about if, if a, how do I say this? What I think is important is to have a conversation about contraception prenatally so that the, so that the woman knows what she's going to do when she gets to the hospital. The reason I think sometimes people opt for Depo-Provera is because they haven't thought about it necessarily until they get to the hospital. And then all of a sudden they need to come up with a birth control method and Depo-Provera seems to be the easiest. Um, Birth control, progesterone-only birth control pills are also easy, but you need to take a pill every day. And in the immediate postpartum period, there's so many pills you need to take or you or you, or you want to take. You're taking um, iron, you're taking a, a stool softener, vitamin. you're taking Motrin and Tylenol as needed, and you may forget. And then if you forget, you're concerned that you may get pregnant. And if it affects the milk supply and the supply goes down and you're not breastfeeding, then you can get pregnant. So what I'd like to talk about a little bit is the lactation amenorrhea method. Yeah. Which is, um, it's really the natural birth control that a woman has if she's exclusively breastfeeding. As I mentioned, it's very unlikely that she doesn't ovulate. If she's not breastfeeding, she's not ovulating until day 29 anyway. But breastfeeding and frequent breastfeeding um, prevents the ovary from stimulating, from being stimulated and producing another egg. And so the lactation amenorrhea method is all about exclusive breastfeeding and the baby is less than six months old and the woman hasn't had any bleeding at all. And it works at a 98% level. And she also so, cannot use a pacifier and also um, the baby can't sleep for a long period, correct? That's right. The baby, the baby can't sleep for more than I think four hours, four to six hours in the, and it's only until the baby's six months old. Once the baby gets closer, once the baby starts eating supplementary foods, you know, table foods or otherwise, um, the recommendation is six months. Now, some pediatricians are starting food a little bit earlier than that. So if the baby's starting to eat, then you need to have a backup method. And so my recommendation would be you talk to a woman prenatally. What are you going to do for birth control? You have a plan. Um, they don't need anything in the immediate postpartum period. Let them exclusively breastfeed, make a full milk supply. When they come for their postpartum visit, that's the time to talk about birth control as far as I'm concerned. You can assess how her supply is, how she's doing with birth control. When does she need to go back to work? Is she even with a partner? Is her partner okay with not having sex yet? Um, and what's going to be the best method? And you may want to start with something that's reversible, as I mentioned. So you may want to start at that time with the progesterone-only pills and see, is there an effect on her milk supply? If there's not an effect, you can use that for a couple months. And then as she gets towards six months, again, another time to be thinking about another more, more effective 
and long-term birth control method. Right. Well, and it's having that conversation is important. <laughs> so, exactly. um, so sometimes some, I have heard that some women are getting, um, a, the device put into them right after delivery. Does that happen? Is that true? Yes. Yes. It's called post placental, um, insertion. So as soon as the, within five to 10 minutes after the placenta is delivered, um, the IUD is put in. Now wow. it's not always a progesterone containing IUD. It's, it can be the, the Paragard as well, which is a copper IUD, which shouldn't have any effect on the milk supply. Um, oh, they still use yeah, those? Wow. What? They still use those? <laughs> yeah, they do. Sure. I, I'm really out of the contraception game for a while. <laughs> yeah, Paragard has been used and it's been around for a really long time. It has a very good track record. Um, the main side effect of Paragard is it causes heavier, crampier periods. Okay. Um, so that's why a lot of women don't like it. The IUD with progesterone in it um, thins the lining of the uterus. So it causes either no periods, very light periods or no periods at all. And especially in transition from breastfeeding, since you're not, you have some uh, what's called amenorrhea, which is no period. You have the amenorrhea and then you go into a amenorrhea for the birth control. Um, mm -hmm. The thing about the post-placental IUDs, 30% of the time they are expelled. As you can imagine, the uterus is huge. They put the IUD, this little IUD in there, and it's likely to be expelled. Um, it also can be, even if it's put in correctly, because the uterus is so big, it can shift around. And so by the time the uterus gets smaller, it can be sort of turning sideways or turning a, a different direction. Yeah, so that was my again, question. Aren't there a lot of changes in the body in that early postpartum period? And can, it be yeah. put in, uh, can there be problems with the placement of either of those? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I would recommend, again, having the patient come back for their postpartum visit and putting it in at that visit or having them come back for another visit, you know, in a week or so to get it placed. The uterus is back down to normal. It can be placed in so, and, you know, the strings can be trimmed appropriately. And so I have heard people, uh, you know, concerns that patients will not return for their six week checkup. Is that the case uh, with your patients, do you find? I do. What happens when, once the baby's born, the woman puts turns her focus to the baby. So she makes all of her the pediatric appointments, but she doesn't necessarily come for her postpartum appointment. Sometimes she doesn't see the need to. She's doing fine, or sometimes she has to get back to work and she doesn't have time to come for her postpartum visit. So yes, we have about a 40% return for postpartum visits. So I understand the concern about not getting on birth control or not talking about birth control. However, I think that making a plan with the patient, letting the patient um, have what's called shared decision-making, where you talk about the risks and benefits of the various methods and let her make her own decision. It's up to her whether or not she wants to get pregnant. She knows how pregnancy um, happens. Works. Yeah. Um, and so is there any way they can call it in, like do a telehealth with you and get birth control? Or you really want to check how she's healed? Of course, I want. I would prefer her to come in. But if a patient wanted to do a telehealth or even just call, I would absolutely um, start her on birth control. Great. We can start her on birth control over the phone, certainly if it's a patient of mine. So breastfeeding parents, I see their uh, period returns 
various times. Um, every woman is so different. And so if you're using that lactation amenorrhea method and let's say, whatever, the baby sleeps through the night or something like that, um, you're ovulating before the first period, correct? Usually, yes. And so that that is the risk in that method is that you don't know when that first period is coming in some yes. cases, correct? Yeah. That's why it is. If, it, if you, I mean, it's pretty unusual for a six-month-old baby to be sleeping through the night. Okay. But every now and then, moms can get babies to sleep, you know, um, uh, to sleep more than four to six hours, and that might stimulate an ovulation. So, yes, um, it's also possible if a woman is making a lot of milk and she can pump milk during the day so that she can have a little bit of a sleep. I get it. You, she wants to sleep through the night. She has to get up and go to work. She would like to have some of her sleep. But that may cause an ovulation. So if that's the case, you want to talk about birth control for sure. That's why I don't let people go generally for the full six months. Generally, what I would do is see a patient postpartum, see what they're, what's going on. Are they breastfeeding exclusively? We talk about a temporary measure between right then. And then I have them come back when they're four months postpartum for their um, annual visit. And we rediscuss birth control for long term into the long term uh, period. Right. And have you <laughs> encountered an exclusively breastfeeding mother who has her milk supply has been impacted negatively? Oh my goodness. Yes. The thing is, it's very difficult to know. And it's very difficult to study. Why? Because women make different quantities of milk. Women have different kinds of support system for breastfeeding. They get different help with surrounding breastfeeding in the postpartum period. You know, I just had a patient who came in, she was already, she was just two weeks for an incision check. And she said that she didn't feel that she was making enough milk um, or the baby never latched. And she was only pumping twice a day because she didn't know that she needed to be pumping more frequently than that. So yeah. especially patients that have Medicaid, we don't have good support postpartum for them. The Medicaid is not covering lactation visits, so they do get a pump, but they may not have the support that they need. If they don't know about the Pacify app, which is available to all women who deliver in Philadelphia, thanks to the Philadelphia Department of Health, um, they may not have a support. They may not know where to go to get support when they leave the hospital to help with their milk supply, and then they just stop breastfeeding. Yeah. So it's very complicated. It's very important that you have a full conversation while the woman is pregnant about what she wants to do in her breastfeeding journey and what she wants to do with contraception. Uh, and, you know, you make a decision together and she knows if she stops breastfeeding or she can't breastfeed for whatever reason, it's important that she contact you and get on a birth control method sooner rather than later. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited. You know, I've been the director of the Breastfeeding Resource Center for 20 years. And finally, this past year was the first year that anyone who had Medicaid comes for free. And um, now we're expanding our home visit program and I'm getting somebody in the, in the North Philadelphia area. I still have to work on West Philadelphia, but yeah. It's uh, finally, wow. finally coming. That's super exciting. Yes. And you're a lot of my patients coming, uh, <laughs> FYI. <laughs> yeah, so I'm really excited about that because it's so true. Um, it's, it's really hard to go through the packet of information and find the resources that you need. You know, who do you call first? You call your mom and maybe your sister and mm -hmm. get their advice uh, before reaching out to a professional. So 
um, getting that information out is super important. Um, I guess the last thing I would say is, and this is going to maybe raise some eyebrows, but there's other ways to have fun and have sex besides penis and vagina sex, which causes pregnancy. So that's the other thing to talk about, yeah. you know, that there's other ways to have fun. Um, and there are other, uh, there's other ways to get be satisfied that don't lead to pregnancy. Exactly. And I would encourage those methods. So you have to have a sit down with the partner and <laughs> no penis and vagina sex. <laughs> It's not no. I don't want to say no, but I just want to say if penis and vagina sex, then you want to be you want to be careful and you want to be protect. But you know, I have heard you that's know the, that's the one thing about pregnancy and the postpartum period. It's a time for exploration. Pregnancy is is you know that's another time for exploration of different um, sexual practices and positions. And the same thing in the postpartum period. So it's I look at it as a positive. <laughs> Of course you do. <laughs> um, so, you know, so you discuss with them prenatally. It's important to talk to your provider prenatally about what you're thinking about. And then mm -hmm. the follow-up visit. <laughs> it's super important to get to that six-week visit and, and follow through for a more long-term uh, contraception once breastfeeding is well established and you're past yeah. the, that time period. So that's great. I mean, just that alone, those, those, that timetable and the importance of getting to them prenatally is, is great. Um, the key is the key is following up. The key is communicating and following up. Yeah. Um, and what about, um, what was I going to ask? It just left my mind. Sorry. No, it's okay. Are there any like misconceptions about contraception out there? Things that people think are bad or will happen? Are there anyone that there's worried? Like, I don't want to take something if I'm breastfeeding. Um, I'm sure there are. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of misconceptions about, um, I'm trying to think if I can think of any um, obvious ones. All right, some people like are, are fearful of taking an Advil, you know, might hurt the baby and don't want to take the pain meds offered after they have a C-section because they're concerned it's going to affect the baby. Um, but what I find interesting is that many people don't think of contraception as a medication. So I've, I've had hmm. consultations where, you know, I look through their history and it's not listed under their medications. And I'm like, what happened to this woman's milk supply? And we're talking, talking and, and, and just mentions out of the blue. Well, when, the, when I went to the doctors and I got, and I got my IUD and I'm like, okay, that, you know, that's a medication that needs to be on your list. So some people, I don't think of it that way. You're absolutely right. You know what? They often don't think about the device. And the same thing with an Explanon, which is another long-term method. Yeah. And because that's a progesterone-containing birth control. We didn't talk about that much. There's, how do you, how but there's do you... just not a lot of good scientific evidence about contraception and um, breastfeeding. But Nexplanon is another um, insert that, that can be inserted and is inserted in the hospital, um, you know, on day one or two after the baby's born before the patient leaves the hospital so that she's protected. Um, and I truly think that really those birth control methods should be um, 
save for women who are formula feeding only, and patients who they understand what the risk is. And, and that's what I would say is it's important to have an in-depth conversation about some women, they know they're going to either want to have sex or be pressured to have sex. They may not be fully breastfeeding and they and they don't want to get pregnant. And, and for those patients, I want them to be able to have, um, you know, what they want for birth control. And they may be willing to risk a low supply or not breastfeeding their infant as opposed to getting pregnant. Now, are so there- I understand are there providers out there that may not think like you and that are care less about breastfeeding and more about protecting this woman from pregnancy? Yeah, I don't know that I would say it like that. I would say that because of the low rates of return to postpartum visits, that we are concerned about um, close spacing of pregnancy. And, um, and we are talking about a very low income population where you work. Yes. Yes. Where mm-hmm. we have a tendency. But I of truly lower... think that it's important to inform a patient and have what's called shared decision making, which is when they decide for themselves what they want, um, as long as they know what the risks are. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people who have other social concerns in life, you know, I've often heard people saying, like, listen, they're worried about when the next meal is going to be on the table. They can't be worried about breastfeeding. Um, You know, so you have to think of the big picture, too, of what's going on in their life and what's uh, the most important aspect that we need to concentrate on. Yeah, but the thing is about that is is that, you know, even for low-income moms, women, infant, children, the WIC organization provides some formula for the baby, but they don't provide 100% of the formula that's needed for the baby in the first year of life. So they're going to have to pay out of pocket for that. And I mean, I hate to say breastfeeding is free, but it is free. Um, However, the challenge really is for many of my patients is they have to return to work very quickly and there's no support in the workplace for them to express their milk when they go back to work. So I understand what they're their challenges are. Yeah. Um, many of my patients have to return to work within uh, um, six weeks, if not two to three weeks after the baby's born, which is outrageous. Yeah. It's not only outrageous from a breastfeeding standpoint, it's outrageous from a recovery of the this intense experience that she's had. So I want to be sensitive to the challenges that our patients have, and I don't want to pressure anybody to do anything that they can't do, but I want to support them and help them to do it if they can. Um, And I also want to empower them. I try to talk to my patients while they're pregnant about what the laws are. The Affordable Care Act says that an employer um, is legally required to support a woman to breastfeed. They're supposed to provide them a safe, clean place to express their breast milk that is not a bathroom and the breaks to do that expression of breast milk. Somebody who is working an eight-hour day is supposed to get two 15-minute breaks and a 30-minute break in the course of an eight-hour day. That's plenty of time to do um, milk expression. However, it's not not always done. Not (laughs) plenty. It's good stuff. Okay. But, okay. By the time you get your pump. It may be enough. Go to the place. Yeah. It's better than not nothing. And if they have a full 12 weeks off, you know, returning to work in two to three weeks, the baby requires much more you requires much more milk and requires much more removal of the milk. Whereas if they return to work at 12 weeks, the baby's much more settled in and women can express the milk a little bit less frequently. So I couldn't imagine um, having to go back to work at two to three weeks or even six. 
I remember it's like, outrageous, but that's a whole political issue that that needs to change on a more large, large scale. So I just want to be able to support my patient to what her goals are and what what her um, challenges are. And I want to reiterate that Mayor Nutter <clears throat> years ago um, expanded that law within Philadelphia, where it used to be. Um, Although I think they changed it. It used to be you had to have at least 50 employees. Um, and he made it not having that stipulation of the 50 employees. And there was also a financial penalty um, against a company if, you know, the mother said something about it. But um, so he added those provisions in the law for Philadelphia, which I thought was that awesome. is a, That's amazing. Because the, the biggest issue with that law is enforcement of the law, because that would require the employee, the vulnerable woman who's newly postpartum or pregnant to make a complaint and theoretically sue or do something against her employer. Well, she may lose her job. No individual is going to do that. You know, and the question is, the enforcement of that law is challenging. But at least if you know that there is a law to back you up and you can go to the website and download a letter stating that it is, maybe you could encourage your employer to do that. There are um, reasons for an employer to want to support a woman to breastfeed. Yeah. And actually, um, I would refer you to the Department of Health and Human Services. There's something called the um, Business Case for Breastfeeding, which is a whole section in that department, which you can go to and download materials to talk to your employer about why, as an employer, you would want to support your employees to breastfeed. It's the ROI, the return on investment. Exactly. <laughs> because an employer spends less on healthcare costs, number one, because when a woman breastfeeds, her baby and she both utilize healthcare much less. She's less likely to leave work to have to go take her baby who's sick to the doctor. And um, she is, what's the word? Um, she's loyal to the employer because they are supporting what she wants to do. And so they have much less turnover of employees. So there's lots of yeah. great reasons. And I would refer your um, podcast audience to that um, website to get any of those materials. They're all downloadable um, and usable. Yes. I was trained as a educator for that <laughs> years ago. And then the Affordable Care Act came through. And so um, there was less of a need for, I mean, there's still a need for it. It was, it's great um, material. And what I loved about that material is like most of the things that you see about breastfeeding has moms and babies and all that kind of stuff. There wasn't one baby in any picture. They were women at work, you know, women on a construction site when, you know, they were showing workplace people in the workplace. And the other thing, the other benefit to it was productivity. So what they found, uh -huh. and this is with all family-friendly programs, you, you know, you, you allow me to go to the gym for free. This is a great place. And you tend to be more productive. Like this, this company is doing this for me. I'm going to work harder. Or I took these breaks to pump. So I'm sitting at my desk and working my butt off, you know, instead of chit-chatting with my coworkers or whatever. So they found way more productivity and, and loyalty, as you said, to the company and, and which is awesome. Yeah. You know, I, I think back, uh, one of our board members, I believe she worked for J and J and, um, 
you know, things were just starting to change for pumping families. And she traveled a lot for work. And they not only supplied her with a breast pump, but they would ship her milk to her house while she wow. was traveling. Yeah, so they have a whole program um, just for that purpose. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. But there was also that article in the newspaper years ago about Starbucks and the people in the corporate office were getting pumping breaks. They had a pumping room. They had everything that they needed, but the baristas were stuck in a broom closet, you know? So it's, it's hard and it's hard for a lot of workplaces to find space, especially like I find waitressings. That's the most difficult one. You can't really like taking my break. Now those people don't get their food. Um, you gotta have some backup. Uh, so those certain, professions it's very very difficult absolutely well, yeah from... i mean mcdonald's and dunkin donuts places like that although they really are the kinds of companies that should be providing this they're way more than 50 employees they uh, the problem is is that many not a lot of their employees are full-time so they keep them in part-time positions so they're not obligated to give these benefits to them um, so those are, these are all very tough issues, um, yeah. which are beyond, you know, the scope of this. But they're all things that we should be thinking about when we are registering to vote and voting. Yeah, we have to think about. Which I have to say. Like, yeah, we have to think about a woman's rights to her body. We have to think about um, going back to work and maternity leave. We have to think about laws when we're pumping. I mean, we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> Yes, we do. Well, we've gone from contraception to returning to work. Being a woman is tough. I'd say. Yeah. Well, any last words of advice? Ask um, questions, I think, is the big thing with your provider. Yeah, I think talk about communicate. Um, communicate to your talk to your provider about what your um, breastfeeding goals are and what your concerns are and how worried you are of being pregnant and come up with a plan uh, for contraception before you get to the hospital so that you know what you're going to do and make sure you make to your postpartum visit. That's a very important visit to, to make it to. There's lots of things that need to be discussed and checked on at that time. Good. Words it was great talking to you, Colette. Thanks you so much too. for inviting me. No problem. And we'll see you on the next episode. I, I look forward to next time. <laughs> All right. Bye Gail. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Feeding Frenzy. The BRC is a nonprofit organization committed to providing expert clinical and educational breastfeeding services. Find out more about us at breastfeedingresourcecenter.org.